First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for a bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at North Kentucky University. With me today is my regular co-host, Cleveland Area Attorney and Republican factotum, Jay Carson. Good morning. Hey, Jay, how are you doing? I'm, I'm good. I I'm, uh, had, had a nice vacation. Tan, rested, and ready. Tan, uh, rested, yeah. and ready, as, as, they, they, as, as, your, as your Nixon uh, t-shirt used to say. Yeah, back in the day, I did have one of those shirts. God, another lifetime. Well, it, <laughs> it is, uh, of course, you, you came back at a great time for a, a huge story, which obviously we'll open with this week, the story that dominated the news, certainly. And that, of course, is the summit between Donald Trump and Russian President Vladimir Putin in Helsinki, Finland. And, you know, by almost all accounts, I'd say you could say it was at best a weak performance by President Trump, who I would say most people, I think, would say came off as far less powerful and commanding than he did during, say, the NATO summit the week before. And most people seem to agree. I certainly do that. The low point was during the, that post-summit joint press conference with Putin, where President Trump seemed to say that he trusted Putin's denials of Russian tampering in the 2016 elections more than he did the assessment of the U.S. intelligence community, which, of course, has concluded that Russia absolutely did interfere with our 2016 elections. Now, of course, after that, the White House... Well, I, 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 I differ you with a little bit on the, the, what we talk about, about what the Russians did and didn't, didn't do. But to your point, everything else, uh, yeah, absolutely. Okay. And, and I, think, I think to call that a, a low point, uh, is is to sort of uh, 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 th- that's sort of underselling it. Okay, well, yeah, I was I was giving it the the most generous spin, but yeah, we'll get into that in a minute because you posted a a great article on uh, the Facebook our Facebook page this week from from George Will, I believe it was uh, that was I think kind of hit a lot of those notes. But anyway, so throughout the rest of the week, of course, the White House and you know the president himself. Uh, try, tried various ways of backpedaling and explaining, including that ludicrous claim from the president, uh, was it that when he said he, meaning President Putin, just said it's not Russia, I will say this, I don't see any reason why it would be, that he actually meant to say, I don't see any reason why it wouldn't be. Um, right. Okay. And, it happened to anybody. Yeah, oh, sure, certainly. And, and then later in the week, uh, the White House announced that President Trump had invited Putin to Washington this fall for a second summit. Um, and then there were also a number of House and Senate uh, votes and non-votes on various things, with, I'd say, the upshot being that nothing truly substantive came out of Congress as a result of this. Now, now that's kind of the, the, the optics and the press conferencing. Now, in terms of substance, there were no formal agreements reached between the two leaders, though Russian officials claimed that there were some verbal agreements on things like Syria and nuclear arms limitation agreements. But because only you know Presidents Putin, Trump, and their interpreters were in the room, well, there's no actual independent confirmation of, of any of this. So, Jay, I, I wanted to get your take. Uh, what did you think about the President Trump's, uh, I guess I'll call it, performance in, in Helsinki? Well, this has been, I'll tell you, it's a, it's a bizarre uh, a story. And, and I'll, I'll tell you, this is, has really made me think on a whole lot of different levels, because I, there were a whole lot of things that, that went wrong here. Um, uh, but starting with with uh, Trump and, and really the only here's, here's the thing the only piece that we really saw of this was that sort of bizarre press conference yeah um, where he didn't really there wasn't really any discussion of, of anything other than uh, Trump's claims that well four hours ago uh, US relations with Russia were an all-time low now they're terrific um, <laughs> and then you know wandering into the uh, bizarre bit about um, uh, you know, he said it wasn't the Russians. Don't know why it would be. Um, so, to me, and this is, and I think to other conservatives, there was sort of a 
a question of uh, going at the very outset of, well, what exactly is this summit about? Why do we need it? What are we doing? I mean, you ought to have some sort of an agenda going into a summit of, of we're, we're meeting to discuss whatever, Syria uh, or, or nuclear arms or the Russians cheating on the INF or um, any any variety of things. Um, but it seemed more just of a Trump-Putin hanging out for a while. Um, right. So I, I guess that, that troubles me a little well, you know, bit. As to, to, uh, to that point— I'm not sure what we're expecting, yeah. Well, to that point, that reminds me in a way a bit of the Trump-Kim uh, summit, because most of these things, of course, there's a lot of spade work done in advance by lower-level lower level people so that you get out yeah. of the summit, you're, you're sure to get what they call deliverable, some sort of agreement on something. But that clearly is not how uh, Donald Trump wants to operate. He just wants to go in there first and see what happens after, which is sort of going against, uh, well, generations or more of uh, diplomatic best practice. And there's a reason why it's best practice, you know? Well, and I, I think you could even make the differentiation between uh, Kim, which was in, in some ways, again, a diplomatic opening that uh, sure. really hadn't occurred ever before, as opposed to summits with the Russians or slash Soviet Union, which we've got a pretty clear blueprint for. Yeah, that's Which right. we've been doing for years. Yeah. Um, so, but, but the, yeah, and, and I guess you, you can, you can, I guess, move on to the next question. Um, uh, I would say that, that, uh, what Trump did was was embarrassing. Uh, it was bizarre. Uh, I don't think it's treasonous, as some people have called. Uh, but it's it's uh, well, you it's know, when you, those... yeah, well, when you compare his manner, his demeanor, his bearing at the NATO summit with how he acted toward Putin, he just seemed cowed and scared and so just craven in his willingness to just reach out to this to this murderous awful man you know and yet when it's when it comes to you know uh democratic allies and and let's not kid ourselves russia is not a democratic government it's authoritarian regime a murderous kind of thugocracy led by this you know former cia operative or ccia kgb KGB. you know it, it just is I can understand why people would say, well, you look at all this, and then he makes this bizarre comment to Tucker Carlson that, well, you know, I wouldn't go to war over Montenegro, even if they are a NATO ally. And you put all this together, and it becomes increasingly hard for more and more people to say, well, geez, this is this is the way somebody who is in fear of having some dirt on him released acts you know in fact just the editor-in-chief of political came out saying that i used to be a, a trump uh, a trump you know skeptic in this sense you know on this issue but now i'm thinking that the putin must have something on him. and all these things come together and it becomes increasingly more difficult to understand what other reason there could be for this bizarre behavior i i my, my sense is again i don't jump to the collusion conclusion um immediately sure. uh, let's let's i would say that the political article the way that was spelled out i think was well done and i think it presents a plausible case and again that that case isn't necessarily for collusion as as it's been described here that there is a uh uh you know quid pro quo uh right. more you of know a blackmail actually, thing really it felt like yeah more me, or, or more of just a uh um you know, hey, I want to tread carefully because I don't know what these guys have. Yeah, type thing. The idea, so the idea that the president feels that he is somehow compromised. Yeah, which is not um, what you want, certainly. Right, not what you want. Um, my sense is though that there are there are a lot of other um, reasons that he. And my sense, it's kind of like he sort of seems to treat uh, his, his friends uh, more badly than his, uh-huh. his enemies or potential enemies. And yeah. I think that that goes across the board. I mean, uh, you know, he, he uh, would, would trash uh, all sorts of, you know, Republican senators uh, and then sit down with his friends, Chuck and Nancy. Um, or, you know, uh, he would, uh, he would uh, trash his yeah. NATO allies yeah. and to say, to say trash, I, I, I don't want to, overstate because i think what you said earlier about his performance at the nato conference uh albeit in some ways undiplomatic um it's i don't think i don't think that it's wrong to you know he's he's not wrong on the merits of a lot of what he talked about at nato as far as 
uh, contributions from uh, from the other countries and so forth. But it, it's almost like you know you can get away with treating your your friends and uh, friends and family uh, pretty pretty crummy, but uh, you have to be uh, polite when dealing with outsiders. And I think that's maybe the way he looks at it, or, or, or more maybe more more apt is, is sort of I, th- I thought. And again, this is armchair psychology, so take it for what it's worth. Is that you know he views sort of the Republicans uh, in Congress. Uh, or NATO allies, or like those are sort of like Trump employees. You know what I mean? You can, you know, they're they're my guys. I can say what I want about them and tell. But when I'm dealing with someone else, I'm going to be more circumspect. Uh, I, I, maybe it was some sort of bizarre, um, uh, not wanting to, uh, thinking he's being more diplomatic by not calling out Putin um, on the uh, the election stuff. I I don't I don't know, but. Um, Suffice it to say, I still think it's it's bizarre, embarrassing, uh, uh, a show of weakness uh, when we need to show strength. Um, and also, it's one of those. This is it's almost it goes back to like the uh, um, you know David Duke endorsement uh, or the the Charlottesville uh, thing, where you know one of probably one of the easiest you know probably the second easiest layup in American political politics after condemning the Klan or racism. Is beaten up on the Russians. <laughs> it's sort of like the, um, uh, and and it's it's you will suffer no uh, political downside, um, in being tough with Russia, uh, and so again, it's it's. Well, you know, my sort of armchair uh, psychology sort of thing makes me wonder that you know you're familiar, I'm sure, with the term wannabes, right? People, yeah. Who, yeah and so, I mean, as a as a marine, I. I've encountered a few uh, uh, sort of military, you could say, wannabes, people who get all gung ho and so forth. And, you know, they I would have I would have joined up, you know, but I had this hangnail or whatever it is, you know, that kind of thing. And, you know, it seems to me that President Trump has this huge attraction to strong people, you know, whether it's authoritarian dictators or whether it's all the generals he likes to surround himself with and so forth. And to me, there's a feeling like here's a person who realizes that he's fundamentally weak but he's drawn to this strength that he doesn't have. And that could just be total BS on my part, but that's kind of a, you know, and again, it gets back to my fundamental belief that Donald Trump is a, is a weak, scared, fundamentally insecure person, which is exactly the sort of thing you don't want in the leader of the free world, but there you right. go. So uh, no, and I, th- I, to me, I think that's a much more plausible um, uh, right. explanation than, Oh, they've, they've got something on them. Yeah. Um, it- for 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 other reasons that I would go you know could go into as far as uh, if the Russians really did have something to blackmail Trump with, uh, and the, the political piece uh, suggests you know it's not you know salacious sex stuff because that's that's sort of been factored in the the equation already with with Trump, uh, but there'd be some kind of shady money laundering type type stuff, uh, tax evasion you know Manafort yeah. type type stuff. Yeah. Um, uh, again, I, uh, I I think that uh, um, if they really had that, I think the Russians would have played their hand a little stronger um, and uh, done more to to push the the Trump um, election than what they did. As, but um, well, you know, yeah, uh, yeah that's yeah. I mean, we're getting sort of the you know getting that sort of intelligence counterintelligence wheels within wheels type thing, and you could drive yourself crazy saying, but yes, that's exactly what they'd want you to think. So that, you know, so. Sure. Well, you know, I should mention, we've, we've both talked a little bit about that political piece and uh, listeners, I will put that in the show notes if you haven't had a chance to look at that, uh, to look at that yet. But another part of this I, I want to talk about is, you know, President Trump this week said that he does accept that Russian, that the Russians interfered in the 2016 elections. But what's interesting to me is how divided uh, ideologically, the public is on this issue. There was a, a CBS News poll that came out this week, found that 70% of Americans agree with the conclusions of U.S. intelligence about Russian meddling in the elections. But there's, an, there's a fascinating Republican-Democrat split. Uh, only 51% of Republicans agree, and 42% say they don't believe the Russians interfered, and the rest are unsure. On the other side of things, 89% of Democrats believe the Russians interfered with, while only 8% don't buy it. And I think, you know, to me, that's what happens when the leader of your party decides to essentially try to discredit uh, the intelligence services in the, you know, in the service of his 
personal agenda. And I think this is the kind of destruction uh, of, in terms of faith in institutions that he has wrought. And it's exactly, I would argue, the sort of things that the Russians were hoping for. Yeah, no, I think the Russians achieved their objective, which to me was not, and again, to me, but um, it wasn't to to meddle in, in an election to uh, elect Donald Trump, but was to just sow the seeds of discord in the in the U.S. to undermine trust in institutions, uh, and that sort of thing, which which is something that the the Russians and the Soviets before them have been doing for forever. Um, so I saw them on the right have have noted, you know, that's it's there's the hypocrisy of of uh, uh, the left um, chiming in now as far as oh my gosh the the Russian threat. Uh, and to me, I, you know, hip- hypocrisy is sometimes a, a good, a good argument, but it doesn't mean that, that they're wrong. The folks on the left who are now condemning Russia are now correct. Uh, they, they, they should have been condemning them for years and years and years. And, uh, uh I was thinking back, there was a, a great book written in the, uh, mid nineties. Um, and I'm forgetting the, the author right now. I could, I could run and go look cause it's, it's on my bookshelf. Uh, but inside the KGB, uh, and it was uh, about sort of everything, the, you know, the, the KGB's foreign operations in the U.S. and all all these sorts of things that they had done, um, which were of the variety of, of uh, like the Facebook posts and just the, the sowing discord and just just screwing with us, um, uh, sponsoring, you know, leftist groups and, and marches for what, you know, one thing or another. Um, uh and I, I have great stories about even, you know, this church program that our church happened to be involved in. And I swore at the time when I was 14, this is this is a commie plot. Um, and it turns out that, you know, 15 years later, um, as as the, you know, records became known after the fall of the Soviet Union, yeah, it was a commie plot. Um, so, yeah. so the, I mean, this kind of thing has has been happening for years. I, I you know, to the, the folks who are on the left who are upset about it, I say, welcome, <laughs> welcome to the, the, to the club. Um, but I think to that poll, maybe it's the question of interfered with the election, because still that's that phraseology uh, troubles me a little bit, because there were a lot of things that the Russians were doing. But no, um, I mean, let, well, well, just hold on one second. I, I just want to make it clear that you're going to, you know, make these comments. But I just want to make it clear that the conclusion of the intelligence community was that the Russians interfered with the election process. And we're not talking about we're not talking just about the facebook posts and all that we're talking about trying to hack into elections related systems in a number of states we're talking about uh you know kind of direct attempts at direct interference and also the intelligence community concluded that they interfered they interfered not just to disrupt the elections and so you know mistrust but they did so also with the idea of favoring Donald Trump over Hillary Clinton. Now, you can you can differ with that, but if you do, you're, you know, anyone who does is is going against what the conclusions of the intel of our intelligence community were. Right. And what I'm, and I'm not differing with that. Okay. I just want to make me, that clear. Yeah, okay. make make clear. Um but to to say they interfered um successfully, I guess. I mean, they they okay, there's yeah, no that's doubt fair. They, sure. there's no doubt they attempted to hack into various state electoral systems. Uh, and I think the intelligence commu- uh, community uh, assessment is that, in most cases, these were sort of trial runs uh, to see what they could break into, what they could get, what they couldn't. Um, but there was no actual, uh, uh, you know, changing votes, that sort of thing, hacking the actual electoral uh, system. Um, uh, and then with the Facebook post, again, to me, that from what the intelligence assessment you know, says it sort of it began as uh, so discord and uh, evolved into elect Trump, uh, which to me also is sort of in the same category of so discord. Um, uh, the third category, I think, where where you look at what the Russians were doing was the hacking of the DNC, um, where again in this case they did actually break into um, the DNC's computer network and got a lot of information uh, and subsequently released it. Um, uh, to the to the disadvantage of Hillary Clinton, uh, although to say Trump got an advantage out of that, I it, it's more a uh, Bernie Sanders. If anyone was was advantaged by it, but uh, that said, I mean, I, I think when the question is asked, do you believe the Russians interfered in the election? Um, I think there might be a better question of do you believe the Russians attempted to interfere in the election? Um, 
So that's, I mean, I don't mean to quibble on that, but I'm just saying when you, when you say that there's a, a public disconnect that they don't believe this, I don't think that the public doesn't believe it. Uh, no. But uh, to me, there's, there's sort of a, a conflation of uh, they're doing some stuff and did they elect Trump, yeah, which is, I, I, which is I, something yeah. completely different. I think to you're say, to, to say the, here's the thing. I think the democratic narr- narrative is, but for the Russians, Hillary Clinton would be president. Well, no, I'll, I'll disagree. I with, hold hold on, I'll disagree with that. I, I think that there are some on the left who say that, but the call it the democratic nev- narrative is overreaching. Uh, I mean, I think that the American narrative should be that, regardless of how successful the Russians were, the very fact that they even made any sort of broad scale attempt to interfere in our elections calls calls for the strongest pushback and know you know the, the strongest pushback well I, I would say i mean this is this this strikes at the heart of our democracy and that's what's the most Strong, well okay. that's that's the most disappointing thing to me of all this is that we've done far too little to prepare ourselves for 2018 i mean uh, let me just say that get on my soapbox here a little bit, but, you know, obviously the decentralized nature of our system with all the individual state election systems, that provides some perfection, uh, some protection. And it's fair to say that now in 2018 coming up, voting officials are a lot more aware of potential threats. And so they're a lot less going to be a lot less likely to fall for that kind of click on this link, uh, spear phishing type scams. But there's still a lot we haven't done. For instance, there are still 13 states that use paperless voting machines, meaning that, you know, there's no obviously paper trail in case of suspected hacking. Uh, Our our voter registration and other systems still need a lot of work in terms of security. I mean, the intelligence community reached these conclusions about Russia in December of 2016. It took until May of 2018 for Congress to appropriate any funds to uh, strengthen election security, and, and that the money they well, but that was well, a bigger, bigger. But, but still, part, they could have done something. They could have done something. But my yeah. point is, they could have done. They could have done a special appropriation for that, and they chose not to do that. And, and that three hundred eighty million they appropriate, it's only now getting to states, which means that even if Congress had approved more funding, and which was something they talked about this week, and and wasn't done. Uh, and Republicans in Congress just said, we're not going to do this. Even if they had, it would be it would be difficult for it to have had a positive effect on election security before November of this year, just because of how long it takes to roll all this stuff out. It's not like you can say, oh, if people are wondering, it's not like you say, oh, here's this new super secure machine. Boom, we're just going to plan it down you know, a week before and you're good to go. I mean, this stuff takes months and months and months. And a lot of this stuff is training and other things. So there's a lot of lead time involved. And so for me, what's just unconscionable really is that we haven't done a lot more, a lot quicker. It would seem to me that this is a bipartisan issue that after we knew that the Russians had made these attempts, that the first thing Republicans and Democrats should have gotten together on is saying, you know, we're going to appropriate what, whatever it takes to make sure that this does not happen again. And that didn't happen. And that's a disgrace. I, I agree with all of that. Cool. Well, there you go. All yeah, right. There you well, go. That's, that's good no, my, good <laughs> my, my, uh, my disagreement, I guess, would be when you say that, uh, uh, I, first let me step back. I, I absolutely Trump should have responded strongly. Uh, to the Russians. And and again, he missed this easy political layup, I think, uh, in saying uh, to Putin or at the press conference that the U.S. will not tolerate uh, any hacking into our systems, uh, even if it's into crooked Hillary's uh, Ill, ill-secured uh, server. I mean, that kind of thing. I mean, yeah, he, could, he could have had it both ways. I, to um, me, based on all of this the, now, the, the yeah. Democrats, Republicans, whatever, uh, we're not going to stand for this, uh, of, uh, this sort of thing from a foreign country. And, and again, he didn't say that. And it's bizarre that he didn't. Um, well, to me, uh, it's no longer bizarre to me. I've, I've come to the conclusion that, uh, I mean, that the simplest explanation for all this really, after all the kind of, all my skepticism, I'm, I'm with the, the, the editor in chief of Politico. I think that the reasonable conclusion to reach at this point is that President Trump is compromised by the Russians, and that is a truly awful thing. Well, see here, I thought you were going just a couple minutes ago with the 
Uh, he just has a, a, a fetish for strong men. Well, no, I think he does have a fetish for strong men, but I think that given, I mean, I think that's certainly part of it, but I think that ultimately just looking at all of his behavior uh, and all of the things we've seen in regards to the Russia compared to everyone else in particular, that to me, the, the most, the, the simplest, most straightforward conclusion that explains the most things is that he, he either is actually compromised or he believes himself to be compromised by uh, Vladimir Putin. Okay. So there we go. All right. All right. Well, um, let's move on to, there were other things that went on this week, believe it or not. I could go on a whole other hour on this. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, Jay, for for years, congressional Republicans have wanted to pass legislation. Well, I'd say weakening the Endangered Species Act. You'd say... uh, um, Reforming. Yeah, reforming the Endangered Species Act. But of course, to this point, they haven't had the votes to do that. And they still don't. But this week, the Interior Department gave them a big helping hand by proposing a a pretty sweeping set of rule changes to the Act. Uh, Just to give you a sense, among the proposed changes are those that would weaken protections for threatened species. That's the the level just below uh, endangered. Uh, they They would remove a rule that instructs agencies to not consider economic impact when determining whether wildlife should be protected. And it would remove a requirement that agencies consult with scientists and wildlife agencies before they approve permits for things like oil and gas drilling or logging. So, uh, Jay, I I mean, I I guess before I kind of give my opinion on this, uh, you can probably get a sense of what it is. Uh, What do you think about this? I I think... um... Well, you, first of all, if you uh, live by administrative agencies, you die by administrative agencies. Um, that'd be my, my, my first observation on this. Um, secondly, some of these, these rules, I, I think, are, are not unreasonable. Um, uh, others, others more so, and it would depend on uh, what actually happens moving forward. Um, but in many cases, I mean, the, the Endangered Species Act has been successful. Um, for for lots and lots of of species, and we've been able to remove uh, them from the list uh, uh, as they've as they've flourished. Uh, part of the part that that bothers, I think, most Republicans. I don't know, not most Republicans, but but a lot of a lot of folks um, on the right uh, are these things like you can't take into account uh, economic uh, factors. Um, because, because look, life is about hard choices, and and when it comes down to uh, things like you know a snail darter versus thousands of jobs, I think it's entirely appropriate that uh, those first they came those, for the snail factors, darters, then they, they came, came for the, the wolves, darter. then they yeah that's that's how that's my concern, you know. Well, I, but but you know, look, I think this is about making hard choices, and uh, I, I don't think it's inappropriate to weigh economic factors into those choices. I think there are two issues here uh, for me. Uh, one issue is the difficulty of, or the long, extraordinarily long in, in years, uh, oftentimes, time frame to get all the necessary environmental permits and clearances before going ahead with the project. And I totally agree right. that that is a huge problem, and that process needs to be dramatically streamlined, and there are ways to do that. So I think on that, you and I are totally in agreement. Yes. Here's where here's where I disagree. The way to do that is not to uh, is not this approach. You know, there's this, there's this myth out there that the Endangered Species Act has has been a success and we've done all these great things. But but actually, we've had a lot more animals or, or wildlife go on the threatened and endangered list than come off. Just to give give folks a sense. Mm. No, just to give folks a sense. The natural what scientists call the background rate of extinction, which, which happens in nature. It's around right. somewhere they think between one to five species per year. Now, currently, the best estimates are that we're losing species at somewhere between 1,000 to 10,000 times that rate. So dozens of species here, here, well, okay, going me, extinct me, every let, single day. Well, let me, let me finish and I'll, then you can go ahead and comment. But the problem is that we're not spending enough on this. There's one study done by the, the Center for Biological Diversity concluded that the federal government spends only around 3.5% of what's needed for recovery of endangered species. And uh, what that means in dollar terms, uh, currently we're spending around 82 
million dollars per year, which is you know, a pittance when it comes to the federal budget. And according to the center, they well, somewhere around $2.3 billion a year is needed. And to kind of put that in perspective, that's around, oh, what a, what a single B-2 stealth bomber costs or 0.1% of what the Republican tax cut is expected to cost over the next decade. And so to me, the problem isn't that we're not do that we're doing too much. The problem is that we're doing far, far, far too little. What's what's the money uh, needed for? What's it going to go to? Well, basically for various efforts to, I think they call it rehabilitate uh, species on the endangered list. Okay. And so I'd repeat my question. What exactly would the money go to? Well, I think there are various things they can do in terms of breeding programs and other things to increase the uh, to increase the populations. But in terms of exactly how that works, I couldn't tell you because I don't have the background for that. Right? No, I get no, I get. But here's here's the thing: it, just setting aside the the numbers, um, to me, the endangered species isn't so much about act or at least the the problem that uh, the problems that people see with it. Uh, the reasons for these rule changes is, isn't doesn't have to do with how much money we're spending on it or not spending on it. It's to the prohibitory pieces, saying uh, somebody wants to build something uh, in this place, uh, but you have to go through the process and you realize that it is habitat for some endangered species, so that uh, a project is either uh, shelved sort of indefinitely while while there is you know this works through the process for years and years and years, or it's it's shelved uh, permanently. Uh, that is is you know the argument that um, uh, I think most conservatives have against the uh, Endangered Species Act is not particularly with uh, how much funding goes uh, towards it, um, because again it's it's more an issue of of prohibition rather than than spending. But l- let's say you you, you want to spend more money on it, uh, great. Um, uh, also, sometimes I think I think we need to reflect on uh, this is this is the U.S. Endangered Species Act. And species may be going extinct uh, at, at an alarming rate worldwide, um, but unfortunately, we don't have jurisdiction over a lot of these places where these species are becoming extinct. Um, in, in prepping for the show, I thought this was was kind of funny. I you know pulled up some internet articles reading about this, and I, and I can't tell you like how many of of these these uh, uh, pieces you know with the headline of you know Trump. Well, the the best one was these ten ten species will become extinct under the the new Trump rules, um, which is I think pretty funny. But uh, again, they included things like you know African elephants and um, which which the African elephant has has yet to establish a, a foothold here in Ohio. Uh, regardless no, I get what you're of, saying, of, and you know, so yeah, I mean, it's it's sure. the alarm stuff, and and it's you know pictures of polar bears, and oh yes, we've got some polar bears in Alaska, but but most of you know. The polar bears in in the world don't live here, yeah, uh, and, and, and these right. and these these pieces that we're talking about of, uh, hey, can I build this here? Can I drill here? Can I do this economic activity in this place? Um, in most cases, don't relate to the hundreds of of species that are going extinct in the rainforest. Uh, now, look, there's there's other stuff we can do in terms of incentives, disincentives, um, in dealing with those other countries. Uh, to preserve stuff uh, that that uh, they have, but in this case, when we're talking about uh, does this prevent uh, an unreasonable impediment impediment to economic activity uh, here in the U.S.? I mean, to me, that's what what so much of these changes were were you know looking at. Well, you're you're right. Certainly, that hard choices need to be made, and I think that for for decades now, we've been making those hard choices in the wrong way. I think certainly I understand the argument about uh, economic growth, and I think economic growth is, is very important. But I also think when you get uh, species going extinct, and, and, and you know, in the U.S., and certainly not polar bears in the U.S. or anything like that, but and most of these species are not cute, cuddly, photogenic things. They're small things you'd never notice or right. see. Right, somebody, except, but some, some other species eats them, and some other species eats them, and yes. Exactly, yeah. and so once a lot of these things start going distinct, you get these, because this is a complex system, you an interconnected system, you get these changes that you can't possibly know the final results of, though, the, the, you know, certainly you ask a biologist and they say, well, this is just not a good thing, even a little bit. And so I think that we're weighing this in entirely the wrong way. I would totally 
be in favor of putting a ton of resources into making the, the, the permitting process as quick and efficient as possible, because I do think it's wrong that you have to wait years and years and years, and part of that's a resource problem. But once a species is listed as endangered, I agree, you know, there, you shouldn't be allowed in current, the current rule is that you can't import, export, capture, kill, transport, or sell any species that's endangered. And I think that's exactly as it should be. And I, you know, so my argument is that we should actually strengthen this in terms of giving, uh, giving the relevant bodies more resources to not just enforce this in, 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 those, in certain ways, but also to get through the permitting process and give a yay or a nay vote as quickly as possible. But I'm not in favor of saying, making it more likely to go ahead with these projects if they're going to destroy habitats of endangered species. Not at all. All right. Well, okay. uh, fair, fair enough. And I, I think we, I think we're really probably more in agreement than, on this than, than it seems. At I least mean, on if you're okay, yeah. 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 Okay, you know, before we get to our next door, we'd like to thank our newest supporters. First is Evan, who's been a supporter for a while, actually. He, he recently increased his monthly support of the show on Patreon. Um, and, you know, that when, when people do that, it kind of says to me that they, they not only think that what we're doing is worth supporting, but even after they made that decision, I feel like they're saying, well, it's actually supporting even more, <laughs> which is it's pretty cool. We so, should get extra points for yeah, that. If, after that yeah. Know. So, um, uh, yeah, or it's, it's the, yes, uh, triumph of hope over experience. Uh, <laughs> well, uh, well, thank, well, thank you, Evan. Yeah. Um, and, and next is Nancy, who's our newest Patreon monthly sustaining supporter. She wrote the, thank you for the podcast. I like hearing sensible discussion from someone who is not on my side. I consider myself to be a progressive with a centrist bent. I've tried to find podcasts from the right. I can stand to listen to, but I haven't had much success. I know what you mean, Nancy. Um, she writes, I, I enjoyed Mike Murphy's radio free GOP before he went radio silent after the election. Uh, ben Shapiro and the Washington free beacon, uh, Matthew Continetti aside podcasts are just too abrasive for me to handle. Do you have any recommendations? So I guess that's really a question to me, Jay, since you're not, right. you know. I, I really don't listen to many podcasts. But I do have actually three suggestions, both both for you, Nancy, and for anyone who else who is interested and finds some of the, the kind of red meat podcasts a bit much. Uh, there's one from the Weekly Standard called The Daily Standard. It's short and oftentimes very interesting, I think. Uh, National Review has a bevy of podcasts. Some of them are pretty good. Some of them, eh, I can take or leave them, but uh, there's some pretty good. And Jonah Goldberg has one, uh, The Remnant. Remnant. Yep, yeah. absolutely. And finally, the Wall Street Journal has a podcast called Potomac Watch, which I think is pretty good. So uh, those would be my recommendations if you haven't had a whole lot of luck find, finding views from the right that you don't find to be kind of too abrasive, I guess, for your taste. So there you go. You know, I'd add, again, this isn't a podcast, but uh, a TV show is the uh, Wall Street Journal editorial um, um, re report. What do they call it? It's it's on it's on Fox, but it's essentially their editors of the editorial page sit around to talk about stuff. Oh, okay. So again, it it's certainly uh, right right leaning, but it's not it's not of the the red meat sort of um build a wall, throw them out kind of right <laughs> kind right. of discussion. All right. Well, well, there you go. So I hope those recommendations are, are useful. I should mention, of course, when you become a supporter of the show, you not only help keep us going, which is a pretty big deal, but you also get access to our special supporters only after show. Last week, uh, Trey and I talked about the Jim Jordan, Ohio State University sexual assault thing and the politics behind uh, sort of and the wisdom of, I guess, President Trump's uh, pardons that he uh, that he made last uh, last week. And this week, we also have some pretty good stuff lined up for you as well. Um, and again, if you want to support the show, you know how to do it. Well, I hope you know how to do it at this point. Politicsguys.com slash support. That's a direct link. Or you can go to politicsguys.com and you'll see support the show and the Patreon and PayPal links and you can click on those. And we really do appreciate it. Thank you so much. All right, moving on. You know, this week, Google was hit by the European Union with a well, equivalent to five billion U.S. dollar fine for anti-competitive behavior, specifically uh, bundling its apps on Android and then requiring phone manufacturers to set them as uh, defaults for users. And if they don't do that, then they lose access to, or they could lose access to Google's App Store. Antitrust regulators in the U.S. actually considered taking a similar action against Google back in 2013, but they decided uh, against that. Now, President Trump slammed the EU's ruling. He tweeted, I told you so. 
The European Union <laughs> jail, you know. <laughs> the European Union just slapped a $5 billion fine on one of our great companies, Google. They truly have taken advantage of the U.S., but not for long. Um, now, now, this comes, I should point out, after another EU fine of Google earlier, again for anti-competitive behavior. This one was for two point, so the equivalent of, of $2.7 billion. Now, Google is still appealing that fine. It says it's going to appeal this one as well. And you, know, you might think, come on, $5 billion, $2.7 billion. Well, but for Google, you might think those are small, small numbers. But I should point out that this latest fine also includes a provision that Google must implement those remedies that the European Com Commission suggested and also end these practices they, they uh, deem to be illegal within 90 days or they face penalty payments of 5% of their global daily revenue for each day they're not in compliance. And that can really add up, I would say, certainly. Um, you know, and, and my view on all this is, I think, very much in line with uh, Democratic Senator Richard Blumenthal. And he commented oh. that the FTC should end its decade of inaction and deference and confront the mounting evidence that Google's business practices have stifled robust competition in a market that is critical to our economy and society. Europe should not be alone in setting the agenda. And I couldn't have said it any better than that. Jay, what do you think? Well, I, I agree on the Europe shouldn't be alone in setting the agenda piece of it. Um, well, there you go. Okay. I, 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 don't, I don't know about, I like, I like his prescription that... Uh, the FTC ought to become more involved. This is, I mean, this is reminiscent of uh, the 1990s antitrust case against Microsoft. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, where they they bundled a browser, essentially um, the Netscape browser, I believe. No, which, the Internet Explorer. No, I thought it, I thought it was no. Netscape. It was, it was, the, Netscape it was Internet Explorer, and the, the problem the problem was is that of course that it just achieved this huge market dominance, and it was a crummy browser, and other browsers like. The, well, what became the Firefox browser couldn't get any headroom because of that. But of, but of course, uh, they ended that essentially through a, well, there was a fine against them, but then there was a settlement and consent decree mm -hmm. and all that. I, I don't recall the details. Um, but the, the, <laughs> the gist of it is if, if you want to include, um, uh, you know, products uh, with your product that, uh, that are helpful um, you do so at your own peril, and I think that's a bad, a bad way to go. Um, so, I, look, I, to me, I think that this, this is going to have the, fa uh, the effect of raising prices on uh, uh, smartphones in Europe. Um, uh, assuming Google even wants to stay in that business at this point, uh, I, I, I think huh? the, I think the EU is is wrong on on gets gets wrong on the facts in that. Um, Look, you have, uh, you know, it, this is not a, a captive app market. Uh, you can go to the app store anywhere. You can you can uh, download whatever browser you want. Uh, it's it's not um, even even less so than in the age of um, uh, the Microsoft case, a situation where you've got a tying arrangement that sort of uh, it binds you to to some other product. Um, that you don't want to buy. So uh, I, I think the, the EU gets it wrong. I think it's largely... Um, well, I, you know, I, I think you get it entirely wrong here. I mean, I think the power of defaults is huge uh, for, for a lot of ways. And, you know, for instance, one, you know, what happened when, uh, when Microsoft was forced to not have uh, Internet Explorer set as default? Well, if you look at the browser market share right now, uh, Microsoft's browsers have uh, 15, 16%. They can't compete in, in a free and fair market. And that's what Google is, you know, that's what Google is essentially doing. And, and you know, I've said it time and time again, I think one of the fundamental roles, one of the main ways that government should be involved in the economy is not through direct regulation, wherever they can avoid it, because I don't think that's very efficient or effective. But what I do think is effective is ensuring that there is a competitive playing field for these things. And in, in many of these cases, when, when companies don't do that, like Microsoft in the 90s or like Google today, they need to be punished for doing that, you know? And so I think that you know, government's role in enhancing competition is critically important. And, and so I think the EU got it exactly right here and that the FTC should have stepped in. Well, you, you wouldn't, you wouldn't disagree though, that there, you have a wide choice really. And first of all, cell phone manufacturers, but that doesn't Secondly, matter. 
because cell there's phone no, operating systems. No, you don't actually. That's that's just well, not I'll true. Say, let's say you have two operating systems. Yes. But but there's there's a choice and there is robust competition between those two choices. Well, well, yeah, well, yeah. There are there are two competitors in the operating system, but basically, if you don't want to go into into Apple's walled garden sort of experience, mm-hmm. then you only really have one real choice, essentially, and that's Android. <laughs> that's like, I mean, I, I guess. Are well, you familiar with the term duopoly, Jay? Yes, yes, okay. I am. But in some cases, so, what, so you, would what you say is a natural duopoly. Would you say that? Would you say it's a it's a free and open choice when there's basically one phone and operating system that is very high end that many people simply cannot afford. And so for the vast bulk of people, you only have one choice. Now I know you can afford any phone you want, but there are a lot of people who simply don't have that option. And so in in many cases, Android is your option. And so that's why I think that this is absolutely uh, anti-competitive behavior. All right. Well, let's even let's let's say, and in that case, then they're they're focusing on the wrong target. They shouldn't be focusing on uh, Google. They should be focusing on Android. But if you if you go to the the next level, then uh, on your on your phone, whatever operating system you're running, you can go to an app store and you can download well, most, typically typically for free uh, any number of of browsers or other search type apps. Sure. Uh, I've got I've got a bunch of different ones on my phone actually. Uh, mine came with um, uh, oh Safari installed, uh, which I don't really care for. So believe it or not, I download the Google app, and that's what I typically use for searching. Once again, Jay, um, you are assuming people are like you, and they're not like you. And you're but, you're but, unique but they, in, in but, a lot of ways. No, of course you're they're more, like me. No, you're sure. This is my, what my, I call my, libertarian my, my, fundamental error. My monumental intelligence and sophistication set aside. Um, but you, you can't still, set that aside, Jay. Y- yes, That's you can. the point. When, when, no, you when can. the question is, you open up your phone and you say, you know, this browser doesn't seem to work for me. Hey, if I click two buttons, I can get a different one for free. Uh, it, it's hard to see why that is a... a well, more a, than browser, yeah, but, a bigger part of it is search engine. Because that, of course, is where Google gets the bulk sure. of it and so that's really more but of in the most issue. cases your your browser and search engine are combined in right the same so program. it but but that but that's my that's the larger point and that google of course has just a stranglehold on that search market and they that's what understandably they want that because that's what they use to generate you know the the vast bulk of their of their revenues essentially so and again, when I say about the libertarian error, what I mean is that, I, you know, I think that in many cases that libertarians are right in that if people, most people thought like them and were like them and analyzed things like them, that libertarianism would work on a larger level. But that's not how people are. We know that for, <laughs> for an absolute fact. And so therefore, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's destined to fail. And so I think that's the fundamental error that you make is that people are going to say, oh, well, this, this search engine isn't really working for me in a certain way. Or, I, you know, I think it's giving me results that are suboptimal, and so therefore I will try another option. That's just not how most real people think in the world. Okay, you, I, I, I thought they did. But no, no, not at all. Again, I I, I'm... You're, you're weird. I mean, in a good way, you know. Right. But anyway. All right. Um, you know, I, I want to uh, move on and talk about a major judicial confirmation this week, which sort of, well, it hit the rocks. Um, you know, Senate Republicans realized that they didn't have the votes to confirm Ryan Bounds to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. Uh, and this came after uh, several Republican senators expressed some concern over some of Bounds' writings when he was a student at Stanford. Like uh, there was this column on LGBT students with the title Low, a pestilence stalks us, which, okay. Um, now, Bounds has since apologized for those columns. He said that they are not in keeping with how I have lived my life. Now, to me here, the most interesting thing about all of this, uh, and the most important thing about all this, well, I don't know the most important, but certainly important, is that Bounds was even up for a vote. Uh, now, there's this, Jay, you're familiar with this, I know. There's this long, long-standing blue slip tradition in the Senate. Right. Which, which has been more or less abolished. Yeah, because basically for, for listeners— been, I thought it had been actually officially abolished, hadn't it? No, I don't—not uh, that I'm aware of. But anyway, just for listeners who don't know, the idea is that if any senator in a judicial nominee state objects to their appointment, they can basically quash the nomination. 
essentially. And in this case, both senators in Oregon uh, objected to it. But Mitch McConnell, that supposed you know lover and defender of Senate tradition, seems to be completely fine with you know destroying this tradition in the name of political expediency. And I thought it had already been destroyed, but we'll we'll check on that. Anyway, it was well, it was anyways under Mitch McConnell. But I think <laughs> yes. the larger point here is it's been working from a political expediency point. I mean, at this point in his presidency, Donald Trump has had twenty three of his judges confirmed, which is a record for anyone at the similar point in their presidency. Now, I would say that certainly the, the ending the blue slip is a big part of it, but another big part, I would argue the even a big, much bigger part, is something that sort of ironically happened when the Democrats were in charge. In November of 2013, the Democrats ended the filibuster for non-Supreme Court judicial nominees, which means that Donald Trump is the first president to go into office needing only 51 votes to confirm nominees, as opposed to the 60, essentially, that presidents oftentimes needed prior to November of 2013. So I think that's really the thing that more than anything else is driving this rapid pace of, of confirmations. And certainly, you know, the, that's what the Democrats wanted when they changed this, and they got it for a few years of Obama. And I think their hope was that they would get it under a President Clinton or, or someone else like that. But hey, you know, if it works for one president, it works for the other party's president too. And so in this case, I think it's sort of a chickens coming home to roost sort of thing. I don't think the filibuster should have been ended at all for either, you know, for, for these nominees. And now this is the unfortunate results of yet another procedure between the filibuster and the blue slip that was intended to uh, intended to reinforce kind of a bipartisanship that in the name of this kind of partisan polarization and warfare that was done away with. And now we're, we're, we're suffering the results of it. And I think it's a bad development. Jay, yeah, what do you think? I'd, I'd agree with you on most of that. Uh, the, the blue slip thing, although I, I think to the extent it hasn't been abolished already, I think it ought to be. Um, because it, it's, it's uh, to me, extremely anti-democratic and doesn't serve, I don't think, a useful purpose anymore and doesn't serve the purpose that it was originally put in to serve, and that is uh, guarding against uh, corruption. Um, uh, you know, if, if, when you had a, for example, back in the day when, when everyone was more familiar with everyone else and you'd have some judge coming out of a state and maybe that state senator uh, knew a little bit more about the judge uh, or judicial nominee, uh, and and uh, could could step in and and, and discuss on rather their fitness um, uh, for the uh, for the office rather than just a straight line ideological, because it it had become sort of a, you know partisans would exercise a blue slip on pretty much anyone uh, from the other party, uh, and I think at that point it's it's no longer doing its its uh, its job. Uh, but I think the other the other thing to look at is. But before, uh, before we get to that, can, can you, because I actually think you make a, you know, you make a fairly uh, a good case about, the blue, about yeah. well, you know, sometimes uh, about the blue slip, but what about the, the filibuster element? I was, I was hoping you could kind of comment on, on that I, You know, the, well. the filibuster, I'm, I'm, I'm more, um, again, as a traditionalist, I think it's sad that it, it went away. Um, and I think we might be better served if we still had that rule. Okay. Um, but. It, it's it's happened. Um, there's there's nothing in the Constitution that, that requires it. Certainly, um, and it's it not coming simply, back. I mean, yeah, it's simply not. as a matter of, of tradition. I I don't see it coming back anytime in the near future. Uh, it would you would have to have some really monumental sea change in in terms of uh, uh, of how we we look at these things uh, for it to come back. But yeah. no, I, I I agree. I think we were were in some ways better off with it. Um, but, uh, you know, yep. But Harry, here we are. Harry, Harry did, Harry did what he was going to do. So, yep. and then of course, you know, then, then the Republicans up the ante by up the ante by doing it for Supreme court. And, you know, there, there, there we are. But, uh, so any, any thoughts, I didn't mean to, you know, kind of cut you off on the bounds thing, which really to me is the least interesting part of it. I mean, it, I guess it stinks for Ryan Bounds, but I'm, I'm okay with that, you know, given that I'm sure he wouldn't exactly have ruled in, in ways that would have necessarily, I would have agreed with, but uh, any thoughts on just that particular element of it or? No, my, my sense from reading this though, is that, that Bounds has really sort of gotten the, the, the shaft here uh, from, first of all, the 
uh, Democrats and from from Tim Scott and Marco Rubio, who kind of stumbled into it and played played along with it. Uh, you know, the the writings that have been described as racially charged. Uh, and it's again, it's always telling when they don't give you more examples of what those writings were. Uh, but, for example, he opposed the existence of racially defined organizations on campus. This is back when he was in college. Uh, criticized uh, those groups for insulting conservative members of, of their groups as Oreos or Twinkies. Um, and again, he has been uh, called a bigot for um, his, his you know, opposition to bigoted terms um, and to <laughs> race-based organizations. Um, uh, now, I, I guess, I, again, I haven't read these articles uh, because I tried to find them and I can't. Um, but Romney uh, has apologized for the obnoxious tone, which which that sort of uh, goes with the territory of, of college journalism. And uh, Mike, I'd say if, if people were to go back and, and look at uh, stuff you or I might have written in college, I mean, they're sort of there before the grace of God go I, right? Oh, well, especially my stuff. I was just thinking yeah. back to some of the things that I wrote. Sure. But, but you know. I guess one. So I, I think it's I think it's unfair to say to say that this is and and again also to to clarify that you know the Democrats said well these were writings that he hid from them or something like that. Uh, he was not asked for writings going back as as far as college, which which again if pressed upon to find writings that we did in college, I think that'd be sort of a tough job. Um, but regardless, he he had provided them. Uh, so I, I think this is this is an issue where um, uh, he got he got railroaded here. Um, you can, you know, I, I don't see any reason, um, well, uh, again, to me, it, it's, it, it's troubling that Scott and Rubio sort of, uh, kind of went off and did this without, um, sort of thinking it over. Well, you know, uh, it, it, what some on the left are saying now is that, well, if, if Republicans, if at least a few Republicans are okay with looking at, uh, college writings for, uh, uh, for, uh, you know, uh, bounds, then when we should open up, we want to see all the college writings for Kavanaugh because it's Supreme Court exactly. nominee, because that's, uh, that's a much more important judicial confirmation, obviously. And there's been some interesting sort of, sort of, back and forth thing with, with basically, I mean, the Republicans obviously want to get Kavanaugh confirmed before the first Monday in October when the Supreme Court meets for its next term. But uh, Mitch McConnell is making some noises saying that, well, if you want to do this whole document dump thing, then maybe we'll just have to push it off until right before the election, which means all you vulnerable Democratic senators, instead of being able to campaign, will have to be in D.C. for the vote and all that sort of thing. So a little bit of that the inside baseball stuff going on. Yeah, well, the other thing is is uh, quite honestly, if if folks like uh, Rubio or or Scott had had issues with this beforehand, um, they could have flagged them earlier, and it could have been brought up earlier in the process, rather than we're getting ready for the vote and all of a sudden. Uh, so it, it's it's to me again one of these uh, can't anyone here play this game, right? Um, uh, if you really did have have uh, concerns. Uh, you mentioned them quietly to the chairman who mentions them back to the White House, uh, who then who says, them. Maybe <laughs> we take, well, who may well, <laughs> who may well ignore them. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and maybe that's the case. But uh, although my, my sense is from the, the folks that the judicial nomination shop is 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 sort of running on its on its own and is probably the most functional. Yeah. No, good point. Uh, of the folks we've we've got working on the White House. But. Uh, I, I think it's it is unfortunate that uh, that now this is expanded. Um, you know, are we going to look at at high school stuff next? Um, no, I, I, and, I, I don't and I agree, know. And, and it again, hits both sides. No, I mean, and you know, I think that we've it's it just another example of sort of the the hyper partisan polar polarized nature of these things. And you know, I've been on record a number of times as saying that, and you know, unless somebody is you know kind of fundamentally judicially unqualified or, or ethically, morally unqualified that the president should, should get, you know, his or her nominees. And, you know, and so, uh, yeah. so yeah, it's, so anyway, all right. Well, you know, before, before we go, I want to let everyone know that as soon as Jay and I are done recording this show in a few minutes, we'll be doing our special supporters exclusive show. I think this week, uh, there's one thing I wanted to talk about this new Arizona law talks about what happens when a couple has a dispute over what to do with their jointly created embryo. Um, and uh, it's pretty interesting, as well as President Trump's plans for the next version of Air Force One. It's going to be 
amazing, obviously. Terrific, right? <laughs> um, so anyway, yes. uh, and uh, Jay, you might have a few things to add in there as well. So uh, if you're a supporter, all that's going to be waiting for you by the time you hear this. At least it should if I'm doing my job right. And if you're not a supporter and you'd like to check it out, just go to politicsguys.com slash support. That's a direct link. Or you can just go to politicsguys.com and click on support the show or the Patreon or PayPal links there. So that does it, though, for this episode. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We do hope you liked what you heard. Uh, you know, and if you could subscribe to the show at, or share the episodes and or share the episodes, that would be very helpful. Word of mouth is our best advertising and leaving reviews and ratings on iTunes also does help. If you want to get in touch with us, mail at politicsguys.com. There's our Facebook page where you can message us and we post stuff throughout the week. That's facebook.com slash politicsguys page. And we're also on Twitter at politicsguys. The executive producers of The Politics Guys are Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson, Trey Orndorff, and Bruce Johnson. Today's show was produced by Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show on Wednesday. We hope you join us.